Each year, I have a uh, job apart from Sinai. I'm moonlighting. I'm a judge for the Sammy Rohr Book Prize. One year it's fiction, one year it's nonfiction. And that means that in the course of the year, as the nonfiction judge, you get sent about 30 books that you are expected to read. When those boxes come in, it's very dispiriting, I have to say. Here's another box of books. And then the judges, who number another, some other Jewish scholars and teachers, some of whom you may know, Deborah Lipstadt, for example, was until this year a judge, but now is doing something more important, which is the US envoy for anti against anti-Semitism. Anyway, all the judges get together and we discuss the books, and then we narrow it down to three, and then we interview the authors, because we're not only choosing a book, we're choosing a person who will carry the Jewish message forward in some way into the future because the book prize is only for a first or second book. We don't give it to old established authors, we give it to people who are starting out and need a push in their careers. I don't know who's going to win this year because we've only narrowed it down to three. But especially with Israel's Independence Day coming up this week, and because I read this extraordinary book that is one of the three finalists, I want to tell you about this book today for the sermon. This is what it looks like. It's published by Yidiot Achronot Press, and I have to say, half the pages fell out as I was reading it. <laughs> Not the best binding from the Yidiot Press, but I am so grateful that it was written and then was translated from the Hebrew, because this is the English edition. It's called From Africa to Zion, The Shepherd Boy Who Became Israel's First Ethiopian-Born Journalist. There's a lot to this book. Not all of it what you would expect, and frankly, not all of it you would want to hear. But let me tell you a little bit about it. It begins with what is in some ways the most gripping part of the story, although all of it is a fascinating read. I mean, really, like you finish this book very quickly. Begins with his childhood in Ethiopia. And it has been the same childhood in Ethiopia for thousands of years. He said when he reads the Bible as a kid, they're talking about him. There is no distance between the life that Abraham led and the life that they lead. As a five-year-old, he was shepherding sheep. And he knew all the animals that his father had, and he gave them all names and felt close to them. His father and mother had four boys, which he said in Ethiopia is like being childless. Everybody else had 10, 11, 12 kids. They only had four, Nebuch. And they're not children, they're workers. That's what they're there for. Nobody goes to school. You're born, and as soon as you can, you start working in the fields. And the women, girls really, get married very, very young, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. But part of the reason that they do, and I will put this in language that is gentle, is so that the surrounding Christian and Muslim men will not take them 
so that they can be married and be safe. So we're talking about a society that is radically different from our own. And then one day in 1984, as you may know, Israel decides, they decided earlier, but on Operation Moses, which was to airlift the Jews out of Ethiopia, continued later on in the 1990s with Operation Solomon, and bring them to Israel. His father starts walking the day we left our home in the village in Ethiopia. It was a Friday. His father said later, the first time in my life I desecrated the Sabbath. These are Jews. Now, they lost the Jewish community before the Talmud. So they live much more biblically and less Talmudically than all the other Jews in the world. But the Christians and Muslims around them also see them as Jews and they are subject to some of the same prejudices that we know from the Jewish world. And by the way, and he makes this very clear, strange as it may sound, in Ethiopia, among Ethiopians, there is racism. For white people, all dark-skinned people look the same. By the same token, in Ethiopia, we thought all white people looked the same. But we were very adept at distinguishing different shades of black. Those with darker skin were often insulted and treated with disrespect. Everything in life is relative, even racism. There is no society that doesn't suffer from this. And he knew it. In Ethiopia already, there's a whole class called the Baria who essentially were slaves. And even later in Israel, jumping ahead in the story, if your descendants are from the Baria in Ethiopia, other Ethiopian families won't intermarry with you. In other words, those sorts of cultural prejudices, they exist all over and they persist for a long time. And that's one of the things that you discover in reading the book. But of course, that's only a small piece of it. They had to walk to the Sudan to get out of Ethiopia. And after his childhood, which he discusses, as I said, very colorfully, and we'll come back to it in a moment, they go to the Sudan. And the Sudanese apparently don't like the Ethiopians, and it doesn't matter if they're Jews or not. So there is a pretty awful scene of what it is like in the transfer to the Sudan, and thousands died, men, women, and children, some of hunger, some of disease, and many of violence on their way to get to Israel. But they didn't think of it as going to Israel. He said, my father never spoke of Israel, and neither did anyone in our community. What did they speak of? Jerusalem. It was Jerusalem that they were going to. It was Jerusalem that they dreamed of. And Jerusalem that they believed one day the Messiah would come and bring them to Jerusalem. And now, miraculously, it was kind of happening. And they come on this plane, which is, of course, miraculous, and families get separated and reunited, and some get lost, and there's all sorts of drama. And of course, you can imagine what an airplane is to somebody who grew up in a village with goats and trees and has never seen anything like that before. And they come to Israel, and what is the first thing they do? They kiss the ground. 
because they've come home. But of course, it's not so easy there either. Because just imagine taking somebody from a life that was unchanged for 3,000 years and introducing them into the modern world. Some of them knew some Hebrew from their biblical studies, but modern Hebrew and biblical Hebrew, even if you know it, are not the same thing. And God knows modern Israel and ancient Ethiopia are not the same thing. And so there is this whole process of trying to reacquaint the families and the tensions of immigration are clear because for the first time with immigrants, the fathers and mothers are not the authorities. The kids are the authorities because the kids know the society and the parents don't. So he has to explain to his father what it means that he doesn't have a bank balance. So nobody has a bank balance in a place where there are no banks. And in Ethiopia, the father is the dictatorial head of the family and the children have no rights, none. Not only the father, he says, but the other relatives could beat the kid. If they fail, an uncle could hit a kid, and that's his right, he's an uncle. And now all of a sudden they come to a modern Western country and everything is reversed and the children know things that the parents don't. And don't forget that some of them were quite old. This is an immigrant story, as you know, that has happened again and again and again and again. And also, it was very hard to leave Ethiopia because as he says, all they wanted was to be buried in Israel. That was an honor my grandfather didn't receive because his grandfather died before they came. That, in a nutshell, is the story of the Jewish people. If anything symbolizes the exile, it is the cemeteries, no matter where, in a village in Ethiopia, in the borough of Queens, New York, in Prague, or in Casablanca. I hear how people talk at home. I think that my relatives miss the dead, those who stayed behind. So that's true. Where your grandparents and great-grandparents are buried, that's always a piece of you, even if you live in another world. So he comes to Israel, and as you might expect, the reception is mixed. He encounters racism and prejudice, as well as kindness and goodness. And he becomes the first journalist born in Ethiopia and reports on what the Ethiopian community went through and becomes a representative for Israel then in the rest of the world. And one of my favorite scenes finds him during in Israel Apartheid Week at the University of Johannesburg in South Africa. And this is what he writes. This excerpt is a little bit long, but trust me, it's worth it. The look in their eyes revealed the intensity of their hatred for Israel, not against Israeli government policy in the territories, but against the state of Israel as the historic home of the Jewish people. The Palestinian suffering was not their concern, it was just an excuse. The shouting grew louder. I approached them and heard their chants. I too am a critic of Israeli policy on a range of issues, but this was a painful experience. I spotted a black student with a tidy Afro and big round glasses. He didn't look Muslim, but was wearing a Palestinian flag around his neck. He seemed like a nice guy, or that's what I thought at first. I went up to him and introduced myself. I told him I was from Israel. You're really from Israel, he asked. 
handing out anti-Israel propaganda leaflets as we spoke. I pulled out a scanned copy of my Israeli passport, which happened to be in my pocket, and showed it to him. He looked surprised and even embarrassed. What are you doing here, he asked. I told him that I'd come to listen, observe, and present the Israeli side of the story. I explained that in Israel, there are no separate sidewalks for Jews and Arabs. There are no separate Jew and Arab buses. There are no racially segregated services. There was nothing like the no blacks and dogs sign that once blemished South Africa under apartheid. The same was true of blacks and whites. I told him I was an example of a black man living in Israel who had his share of problems, but was a free citizen. He was unconvinced. As far as he was concerned, I was on the side of evil. There you go, there in a nutshell, is the dilemma that I think all Jews face, which is we don't want to argue that the state is perfect, but the problem is we're arguing with people who really think that it's evil. And that's why his story in the end is so remarkably inspiring. It's because he is, after all, somebody who has lots of criticisms of Israel. And the way that Israel handled even the bringing of the Ethiopian Jews. But also, as I remember, because I was in Israel during Operation Moses, I remember a BBC commentator, and I've quoted him before, I was sitting and listening to the radio, who said, I'm no fan of Israel, but there is no other government in the world that would fly its planes halfway across the world for people living in a village of a different race and save them because they said, we are your sisters and brothers. And the fact that this is the first story from somebody who himself was rescued makes this really a precious book and I very much recommend it to your attention. We get to interview all the authors and I might ask him about this paragraph which I think anybody who has ever been a Jew in any other society understands. He says, being Ethiopian is a full-time job. I don't know how many times you've ever been Ethiopian. Don't try it at home. It's an impossible mission in the Israeli reality. Because he says every time he meets someone, they talk about Oh, I helped with the airlift, or I cared about the airlift, or I know about your society. In other words, he represents all Ethiopian Jews, even though he's just one person. But his story from this benighted village comes home when he takes his four children back to Ethiopia to show them where he grew up. And they can't believe it. For them, since they all grew up speaking Hebrew in Israel, to see the tree that for him was the most important companion of his childhood, this like spindly little tree, and to see that his home doesn't even exist anymore because it was some hut that was eventually knocked down, and to see the other children in the village, who none of whom wear, he talks about how the first time he tried on socks, what a revelation, who don't have things like socks or shoes. And to think that that's how their own father grew up is poignant and beautiful and a little heartbreaking. In one of the most moving scenes of the book, his father meets Aharon Appelfeld, 
who was a Holocaust survivor and a famous writer in Israel, who as a child hid out alone in the forest and managed to evade the Nazis and that's how he survived. And he says, there was a certain kinship and understanding between the two men who did not share a language because his father didn't really speak Hebrew, but they understood what it was to grow up in a very different world and to come to this world. And the combination of pain and loss and pride that they felt. It's a profoundly Jewish story. And you read it with a feeling of pain and loss and pride. And on this week, when we celebrate the state of Israel, we should realize the tremendous variety of experiences that have poured into that little place to make it the Jewish state. Whether they came from Yemen or Iran or Poland or Ukraine or Russia or Ethiopia. Somehow, with all the tensions and strains and difficulty and pain, they all managed to come together as Jews. From Africa to Zion, from Ukraine to Zion, from Iran to Zion, thank God we live in an age in which such journeys could be made. Shabbat Shalom.